Improving health literacy, the ability to understand and act on health information, is key to improving health outcomes and lowering costs. Welcome to the Health Literacy 2.0 podcast, the podcast series from EdLogix where we talk with business, HR, health, and community leaders and explore unique, data-driven, and effective behavior-changing solutions that can help improve people's health literacy and increase their engagement with health and wellness programs. For show notes and bonus resources, visit www.edlogix.com forward slash podcast. Okay, let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's podcast on health literacy and workforce well-being. My name is Seth Serksner, Chief Health Officer at EdLogix, and I'm really pleased today to welcome one of my former colleagues, and we have grown to be friends over the many years, we do not want to share how many years, that we've now known each other, Howard Kraft, who is currently the Chief Strategy and Innovation Officer at a new company called XO Health. You know, Howard, it's so great to have you on the podcast and to, you know, get to chat with you. Tell everybody a little bit about your career path and your current role. I, of course, know a fair amount about it, but I always learn a little bit more. So, well, I cannot tell you how honored I am to be part of your podcast, Seth. And we have known each other a few years. And, you know, you asked about my career path. I am very fortunate to have had up to this point and in the coming years, a very rich and rewarding career. I think it's because I've been able to work with and learn from so many bright, energetic, innovative, disruptive people such as yourselves, people who have been trying to make a difference in the health of people and the health of organizations. So that's kind of at the forefront of my mind in terms of my career. I started out on the employer side. I spent a long time on the employer side. I then got into consulting and was able to work across just about every industry type and so many different clients, both working primarily domestically, but also internationally doing specialist work, doing broad generalist work. And then in the last half dozen plus years, I've been working on the health plan side. I wanted to round out my career by trying to put it all together, because I think if I look back on my early employer days or my consulting days, we were trying to fix a system that was broken. And I've realized over time that you can't simply put band-aids on things that need more systemic change. And as such, that's kind of leads me to where I am today, XO Health. So always health and well-being. And did you have a background? Like when you went to the employer right away, were you in HR? Were you in benefits? Did you want to be a wellness guy? Because these are days that people don't understand. There really weren't job descriptions for what we do now. Yeah. If you go back that far, Seth, (laughs) uh, I have a master's (laughs) master's in exercise physiology and specialization in cardiac rehabilitation. And I started my career working in a medical department of a major organization that had 100,000 employees worldwide. We were trying to keep that population healthy and targeted risk management and cardiac rehab for the unhealthy of the population and then ultimately get to the healthier people and try to keep them healthy. And then I moved over to a Forex products company and spent 14 years in HR, working in health management, 
EAP, work-life, benefits, disability management, benefits, communication, benefits administration, and data analysis. And I was able to broaden my skill set, my experience set across all of health and healthcare and into many aspects of HR during that time. So yeah, it mm-hmm. evolved from a more narrow, clinically oriented health and well-being focus to a much broader perspective. I think in all those situations that I was in, we were always trying to connect the dots. And I was very intrigued early on with the business of health. So I got much more into how health impacts business. How do you quantify impact of health on a business, on people? And that just opened up a lot of doors. And when you and I worked together in consulting 20 plus years ago, I think we came at it from different angles, but with the same general intent of trying to improve the health the well-being of people, the health and well-being of an organization, and the bottom line. Yeah, I appreciate that because sometimes, you know, people are listening to understand what the career path is and starting in exercise phys, maybe being occupational health. How do they get into these career paths? So that was really helpful. And now I know you are with, as you said, this health plan, this XO health plan. You have this very lofty title of Chief Strategy and Innovation Officer that I'm sure means a lot of things and has you doing a lot. So tell us a little bit about the mission of XO and more specifically, though, what kinds of things are you focused on? What are the big objectives or challenges you're working on these days? Sure, I'll tell you a little bit about XO Health. And we we began our journey about a year ago, and that's when I joined. And in essence, to focus on self-insured employers who we feel overall are getting the short end of the stick and that from a health system perspective, a healthcare perspective, not getting enough attention as a core business. Self-insured employers, employers in general, represent about 100 million lives in the U.S. And unfortunately, I think they expect more, they deserve more, and, and they should demand more in the way of health and healthcare and transparent accountability for achieving the very best in health outcomes, the very best in cost outcomes. So our goal as an organization quite simply is to achieve those goals. And we're doing it through the lens of really thinking about a fully integrated supply and demand side approach and with a multi-stakeholder approach. We believe that in order to achieve the best outcomes, you have to take a look at members, people, providers, employers, partners in the mix, and create value for each of them. Understand what they're trying to accomplish, remove points of abrasion, create value, and ultimately create a, a more unified system of care that actually works. And assuming that everyone's aligned towards achieving those outcomes that we all want to achieve, you know, better health, better experience, better cost. So let's try to do it for all people, not just a handful. So what's your role in all of this then? Because, you know, it is a great mission. Well, I think my role in it, let's put the title aside. I'll speak a little bit about that. But in essence, we've been working together in my role in the past year has been to think about all the problems we're trying to solve, make sure we understand those, and then identify how do we fix them. So working on clinical strategy, working on our go-to-market strategy, 
working on evaluating vendor partners along with the rest of my team at Exo Health. And then as we move forward, strategy and innovation and the function that I'm responsible for is really to understand all of our pieces of the puzzle internally, leverage what they are doing and what they need to accomplish within any parts of our organization, understand the marketplace, the external marketplace, competitors, customers, whether they're employers or members or providers or partners, understand their needs, begin to distill all that, bring it all together so that we as an organization can continue to meet the needs of the market, exceed the needs of the market, continue to evolve, continue to innovate. We've made a commitment that we're going to be modern from day one and stay modern. Let me ask you a specific question around health equity is such an important theme for all of us these days. Part of that is health disparities. Wondering how you are all thinking about this topic and how to address the disparities. I am delighted that you asked that question, Seth. When we take a look at solving for health and healthcare, certainly a significant issue are the issues of overall inequity and the disparities in healthcare. We have an approach towards thinking about people as just that, people, and we really are focused on their needs as well as their medical conditions. We believe most of the healthcare world is focused more on the medical conditions and very secondarily someone's needs. The needs are of equal importance. Those can either help or hurt when somebody is trying to get care, trying to access it conveniently, navigate the system, pay for it affordably. So as we think about our model, health equity is at the forefront. It's you know needs, social needs, social drivers of health, and medical conditions working together. In order to get the best care for people, to get the best experience for people and the lowest total cost of care across the entire system, you must focus on all those things. And that's why our system, you know, we talk about care delivery. We also talk about care enablement. Care enablement means address all the social needs, the needs of the person. The fact that some people, they make less money. They're in jobs where there's very low autonomy or they have lives where they have low autonomy because they're taking care of elderly parents young kids. They're in areas where it could be a food desert or a care delivery desert. How do we bring care to them, bring them to care? How do we do that affordably? Yeah, so I appreciate that. And I also would love to hear your thoughts on the bias within the provider side, whereby we understand that perhaps women, African-American, depending on individual characteristics, we're seeing different levels of care there. And I don't know, I mean, that's a big rock. I'm wondering if you guys are able to talk to your providers, work with your providers about this issue, or even have the analytics on it at this point. I think it is an absolutely complex issue. I think as we think about the providers and how they serve members and how they take on risk and accountability for care for that attributed population, you know, we intend to have key performance indicators that look at all aspects of care, including equitable care. And we intend to look at our measurement from a very broad perspective. We will stratify our population of people that we serve by their social 
and health needs and risk score, we'll also provide that feedback to providers because we do believe inherently that providers are trying to do the right thing. And if we have the right feedback loop to them about how they're serving all parts of their population that they serve, not just a handful, I think we can drive fundamental change. Also, virtual care is certainly a piece of mm -hmm. equitable care as well. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me that you would have a metrics-driven kind of approach to this, be very evidence-based. I know your chief analytics officer at the organization, again, for many years, and she's quite capable and disruptive in her own right. So I think you're in good hands there. So it makes a lot of sense. So what else are you thinking is a kind of a major challenge that XO is going to be doing differently? I mean, I get the general philosophy, but pick an area, whether it's, you know, the chronic condition management or the wellness space or the mental health space. I know you're working across all of these, but is there anything you can share with us that might illustrate how you go about this work and your approach? Sure. I mean, I do think at the heart of our approach is leveraging kind of that integrated demand and supply side approach, fully unified. That's really important. It is to look at how care is delivered and paid for and how there's transparent accountability for results. So I do think that as we think about any of those conditions that you mentioned, it's about having payment models that are respective of scope of care. So if you're a primary care provider and you have this level of service that you provide, you should be held accountable for that scope of practice. If you might be part of an advanced primary care practice with multidisciplinary team members and so forth that are able to address behavioral health issues, diabetes management, et cetera, you're held accountable for a broader piece. So a core part of our model is to align payment, take out the waste in the system, and really focus on accountable care. And we can do that. So I think that's really at the heart of it. The other piece of it, Seth, is to recognize that it's not simply easy enough to say, I've got lots of quote unquote providers in a network. What you need to have is timely, available, accessible, affordable care. So that means you need to do it on a omni-channel basis. You need to be able to have immediate availability. So you begin to build it into your your agreements, your contracts about how quickly people can see them. You align your scheduling capabilities to the medical record, to the practice management system, to the care management system that we have. Our job as a plan is to help care, to enable care, to empower care. It's not to deliver care. It's really focused on that, again, through the social and health risk needs of the population perspective. Are you able to find providers, as you say, I truly believe that providers want to do the right thing. They want to help their patients. They would love to spend more time with them to do all the things that they ultimately went to medical school for. Yet providers sometimes, and maybe it's because of this payment misalignment, are you finding a willingness of providers and networks to be accountable to these metrics? It's been one of the most fascinating and rewarding aspects of the last 12 months is to meet with provider groups 
who want to deliver the best care. They want to not have the health plan get in the way of good care delivery. And they want to make a reasonable amount of money doing so. And there's quite an amount of momentum for independent providers who recognize that their ability to deliver good care can be enhanced by how they're paid and by the administrative systems that are in place or not in place that get in the way of them doing what they know best for the patient, where they can actually you know, improve their margins per patient. They can improve their overall revenue. They don't have to be burdened by excessive administrative complexity that sometimes a health plan can create. So strip that away, have a better experience, better accountability. And again, I am not responsible for our network development, but I've been very fortunate to be in face-to-face meetings in Texas and Georgia and numerous Zoom calls with provider groups. And there's a great momentum to do just what you think is important. And I think what's important for the system. Interesting. So maybe on the spirit of this health equity, for me, I think of health literacy as one of the blocks of health equity, health disparities, social essentials, and health literacy. I talk a lot about health literacy moving from kind of old school brochureware, dense language, health literacy 1.0, to moving it by using behavioral science and gamification, multimedia, YouTube, infographics, really interesting writing, and the data to personalize it and create a strategy and relevancy. And I call that 2.0. I'm wondering where you see this kind of health literacy piece fit into the providers you work with, your overall health plan infrastructure, how you interact with patients. And just in general, I'm just working on getting some traction on that issue in the industry itself and would love to hear your thoughts on it more broadly and specifically to your experiences as of late. Well, Seth, I know you've spent a large part of your career focused on this topic and you've moved the needle in a big way over, you know, by the way you've advised people and organizations to take this on. So I applaud you for your efforts. But I would also say that health literacy 1.0 doesn't work. And I think that's what you just said. So you have to move into a world of 2.0, if not 3.0, and and keep going on that in really personalizing information and providing it at the right time, at the right level of simplicity, the right level of digestibility so that it can actually help people be activated, take action, continue with that action over time. So that means it can't be too dense. It can't be too, too much. It can't be too many choices. I do not think that health literacy alone will be the cure. But if you get to your point of 2.0, where it's much more based upon somebody's specific needs today in the immediate moment, and it's based upon their needs, their interests, their preferences, their values, their cultural backgrounds, et cetera, then it can actually be extraordinarily you know, accelerative in terms of people taking control over their own health and their lives. Yeah, I appreciate that. You know, the CDC's Healthy People 2030 now includes health literacy goals. 
They've also created a definition that has both organizational health literacy and personal health literacy. And the personal health literacy is, I think, the, been a big gap, which is the helping people have the knowledge, skills, and confidence to navigate their own health journeys. And much of what I feel we've done to date is we've held their hand, we've helped them make an appointment, we've helped them find a doctor. But again, we know that only one out of 10 people are health literate proficient in the US. 80% of what a doctor tells you, you forget by the time you get to your car. And I would welcome seeing XO and others out there that are listening, think about where health literacy, this next level, because there is a next level to it, it fits into the solution. I appreciate your comments on that, Howard. You nailed it, Seth. You said knowledge, skills, and confidence. And confidence is critically important. And when you are doing well and you're okay physically, mentally, socially, it's easier to be a bit more confident. But when you get that diagnosis of cancer or some other diagnosis that you never want to hear, your confidence goes out the window immediately. So health literacy does need to understand points of needs and how somebody's overall, you know, kind of emotional state and willingness to take things in changes. So if we can do that, then I think we can really help move the needle dramatically. I appreciate that. So we've covered a lot of ground, Howard, and I was glad to hear a little bit about your career path, actually, as we talk about that and reminded that you have some old exercise, phys, cardiovascular discipline training in your background, and then on to occupational health and all those other things. Also really interesting to hear how XO is thinking that they might be able to make a difference, especially around payment alignment and some of the other things that you talked about. What did we miss or what would you like to emphasize before we close out? I think we covered a lot of ground, Seth. I think that what I would simply say, what did we miss is, you know, talking really about the risk of status quo. I think all of us individuals, practitioners, leaders of organizations, whether they're employers or they're healthcare organizations, need to just step back and not feel helpless to change the status quo because we know the status quo is not working. And I think now more than ever, because of all of the social needs, because of all the health needs of our populations, we can't stand still. So I just think it's a call to action to each of us that the landscape is so different today than it was three years ago or five years ago across so many fronts. It's actually a wonderful groundswell of momentum that we can all take advantage of as we tackle the issues that I know you and I got into this business for a reason. And it's going to take all of us to play a role in, again, not accepting the status quo, challenge it, fix it. Don't just complain about it. It's a great theme, Howard, because I can't believe that we are at double-digit healthcare trend increase again. And I remember starting this, you know, I'll just give it 20, 30, however many years ago you want to say. And we all talked about the trend and how GDP is getting absorbed and all the rest. And for a little while, we made some progress. But here we are again. And to your point about status quo, 
I'm so inspired by what you're doing to say, well, I'm going to give it a shot at the root cause. I've seen it all these years. You know, I've got a little kind of idea on what this is. And also your opening, I thought, was also a little prophetic in terms of 100 million lives. Employers do influence the system. And they actually have always been the innovators driving things. I mean, Medicare, Medicaid, of course, but employers drive a lot of innovation. And so if there are employers listening to this, again, we know you're trying to run a business. (laughs) There's a lot going on for bandwidth, but I want to echo Howard's point to keep on the good fight. So thank you again for your time, Howard, your commitment, your mission, and your friendship. It means a lot to me. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thanks for joining us today on the Health Literacy 2.0 podcast, the podcast series from EdLogix, where we talk with business, HR, health, and community leaders and explore unique, data-driven, and effective behavior-changing solutions that can help improve people's health literacy and increase their engagement with health and wellness programs. Remember, for show notes and bonus resources, visit www.edlogix.com forward slash podcast. We'd love it if you subscribe and share the show with your colleagues. Thanks and see you soon.